Our scripture this morning is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And if you've been attending our uh, adult Bible studies, you've learned to look for context clues, and you'll see that this is headed up as call to blessing. Finally, finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you want an outline of this morning's lesson, you can have it. Just leave your Bible open there to 1 Peter chapter 3, and you'll be able to follow along right in the context. We are glad you're here this morning. Once again, if you are visiting with us, we are especially glad that you're here, and hope it is that... Uh, what you find us doing here is certainly, as Jesus would say in John 4, verse 24, in spirit and in truth, and it is that you've been edified by the worship service up to this point and will continue to be. We have been, in the last several weeks, talking about our marriages and how to build stronger homes. You remember two weeks ago, we dealt with what a wife needs more than anything else from a husband, looking at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Last week, we looked at what a husband needs from his wife, six things that a husband needs from his wife from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Today, we are concluding that, uh, that uh, well, I don't know if you can call it a series, but that group of lessons that we've been uh, working through with six things that you and your spouse can do to build a stronger home. Realize that first and foremost, this is not necessarily still in the context of talking especially about marriages. You note that in your context there in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 6, he deals with wives and their relationship to the husband. When you get to verse 7, he deals with what a husband, uh, the way that he needs to treat his wife. But as he begins to complete this section, note that he uses just the term, finally, my brethren, chapter 3 and verse 8. Or, as one, part, one version translates it, to sum up. And this is not just a summary of husband and wife relationships, but this is also a summary of what he said about chapter 2 and how servants relate to their masters. It's a relationship about summing up about how we submit to our government leaders. And as he talks about the term of submission and cleaning this and bring it all to fruition, he's saying some things about our relationships as Christians to one another and certainly to the Lord. You see... The statement we made last week, we're going to make again. Your happiness in marriage, your happiness, if we can say in life, is dependent upon the degree to which you do things God's way. Our relationships and their success or their failures determined are dependent upon so much the way that we choose to listen and respond to the word of God. And so it is, I want you to take a look just at the quotation that he uses from Psalm 37 this morning as we introduce this lesson. We're going to deal with this in reverse and look at this first and then jump back and hit those six things that are going to build a stronger home. For those who would love life, quoting from Psalm 37, Peter says, and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from speaking evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
The question from Psalm 37 is, do you want to live a good life? And I think the answer for all of us is, yeah. I don't know of anybody that would say in their right mind, yeah, I want to live a more miserable life. You know what? I haven't achieved all the misery that I can stand, and so it is that I want to live a horrible, miserable, unhappy, disparaging life. Nobody wants that. And so as Peter quotes from the psalmist, and he says, if you want to have a good life, if you want to see good days, here is some things, or here are some things that you really need to take care of, and here are some ways that you really need to respond. If you have your study sheet, note that I left that blank. For he who would love life and see blank. If you want to insert something there in the context of where we're going to go, I don't think that it's out of line with what we've just talked about in the last two weeks to say, he that would love life and have a good marriage. He that would love life and have a good marriage. Now, with that flow of thought in that context, let him refrain of his tongue from speaking evil and his tongue, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it because the lies of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Brothers and sisters, there are homes that are being ripped apart because people are not refraining their lips the way that they ought to. People are not communicating the way that they ought to. And so the bulk of this lesson, dealing with verses 8 and 9 especially, are going to have to do with what we communicate, not only with our words, but the way that we treat our spouse. And again, these principles are applicable to all Christians. Just We're going to make that particular application this morning with regard to our marriages and our homes and our families. And so it is that he gives six characteristics beginning in the summary section, verse 8 that we're going to take a look at this morning. Follow along with me, please. The first one, if we can term this, love God more than anything else. Verse 8, finally, all of you, be of one mind. The word homophon it's, uh, in Greek has to do with being harmonious in nature. <laughs> now, I'll be singing a song sometimes in the kitchen. You know what's going to happen is Catherine or one of the kids is going to start singing with me. And before too long, one of us is going to start singing some harmony. We don't sing in order to make the song worse. And some of you say, well, you've never heard me sing. Well, you know, make a joyful noise certainly to the Lord. But when we talk about singing, we want singing in harmony. And we want singing to be something that's, that's not cacophonous. That would be the opposite of that. Something that just makes noise. There's a lot of noise that's happening in marriage because we are not seeking harmony the way that we ought to. This has to do with being of one mind. That is Christians, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives. What must our harmony be based on? Our harmony must be based on the fact that you and I love God more than anything else. And because you love God more than anything else as a husband or as a wife, that means I'm going to treat you the way that God wants me to treat you as a husband or wife. Again, I would note the context of 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. And so it is, I'm going to respect what God says about the role of a husband in the home because I love him more than anything else. As a wife, I'm going to respect what God says about the role of the wife in the home more than anything else because we want to create that harmony. And if I base my our happiness on marriage upon what I want, my will and my wishes, my wife is there to serve me and it is that she's there to meet all of my needs, I may be content for a while. But you know what's going to happen is because of my selfishness, 
It's going to put a strain on her. It's going to put a strain on the relationship. It's going to put a strain on both of us until the point where it is that there's going to be some major friction that's caused within that relationship. Brothers and sisters, when we talk about loving God more than anything else, we're talking about spending time together, communicating not only with each other, but communicating our values, communicating our commitment to one another and to God. That's what we do when we pray. We demonstrate something above our dependency upon God by how we pray together with our spouse. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. And yes, that applies even within the marriage context that with my husband, with my wife, we're going to be people who pray together, who communicate not only our needs with one another, but also lift those things up before the Heavenly Father. We're committed to one another. Folks, sometimes our commitments are just expected. Well, I expect my wife is going to be there in the afternoon when I get home, and I expect that she's going to have taken care of the kids. And, but when we talk about commitment, and we talk certainly about commitment to one another and to God, those are things that need to be communicated. Honey, I love you. I'm here to stay. Honey, I love God more than anything else. And based upon that, I'm going to respect what the Bible says about how it treats you. Note this, number two, be of one mind, he says, finally, but he would also say, listen and communicate compassionately. Having compassion for one another. The word is sympathetes. You hear the word sympathy. And in the context which we use sympathy, we're talking about somebody who's lost loved ones. This congregation has had some folks that have lost loved ones of late. And we put in the bulletin, our sympathy goes out to this person and the loss of their spouse. What the word sympathy means is that you feel with that person. You feel something with that person. There's a fellow feeling at the heart of that. It is not only that we're of one mind, we share the same common goal and purpose, but it is that we feel together in the common struggles that we have. But you have a marriage where it is that people don't love the Lord maybe the way that they ought to. And they don't feel together as husband and wife. And all of a sudden you have wife saying about the husband, I feel absolutely no sympathy for that man. Or the husband saying about his wife, I've got no sympathy for you. That's not what we're commanded to do. And you want to build a stronger marriage and a stronger home. What we have to talk about is feeling together with one another. Sympathy. Sympathy. I looked this up just to kind of uh, get a context about the way the world uses it. And, you know, uh, somebody said to experience sympathy, there have to be these elements that are, that, are, that are part of it. The first thing that they mention is that there has to be attention to a subject. That is, I'm going to devote my attention. If I'm going to feel sympathy for somebody, I've got to be directed and attentive to their needs. You know, there are people who are suffering today in Africa. And I may not necessarily feel anything towards them because it is that my attention is not necessarily geared towards those. You're more likely to feel sympathy for maybe somebody who's standing on the street corner who's begging or somebody there in your neighborhood who's, who's had a child that, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's got some, some problems. You feel with that because you're in their path. You see something. You're attentive to them. There's proximity. There's nearness. You know, sometimes husbands and wives can share a roof but be as far away from one another mentally as they possibly can be. Just roommates, maybe passing in the night. That's not God's will. 
there's nearness, there's proximity, there's attention to the subject, there's vulnerability. I see my husband or I see my wife suffering with something. The Bible tells us that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. But our heart goes out to, we extend our sympathy to them and, and what it is that they're dealing with. You got a husband who absolutely hates his job and the wife who just says, oh, I have no sympathy for you. Well, where is he going to go to help, have, have somebody that supports him if not the home? A wife who's having all kinds of trouble with a friend or with the kids or with her job or with the, 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 the daily day requirements. Well, I've got no sympathy for you. I see you. I'm near to you. I'm plugged into your feelings. And I care about you. There's an identifying with so it is that you help that person. You know, God made husbands and wives to fit together and to take care of each other's needs. And as we talk about this in terms of marriage, you want to build a stronger home, listening and saying, I hear what you're saying, your concerns and my concerns, and I'm going to listen compassionately, and I'm going to communicate compassionately with you. That's part of it. Note the third characteristic, loving with no strings attached. Love as brothers, Peter would say. And again, speaking of the brotherhood, the fellow Christians, about how it is that I view you and you view me, the word he uses here is the word Philadelphos. We hear the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Here's a kindness and affection that we have towards one another. Where it is that you ask for my help to come and paint, you ask for my help to come and help you move, I'm going to say because I love you, because you're my brother, you're my sister, yeah, I'm going to go. Why do we extend more courtesy and why do we extend more compassion and more, more, more love towards our Christian brothers than sometimes we do our spouses? We're in this together. And when we talk about husbands and wives loving each other and certainly loving with no strings attached, it's not, you know what, I made you a sandwich a little while ago, now it is that you need to mow the lawn for me. <laughs> That's loving with strings attached, Right? It's kind of funny because I've got my, my four-year-old is just learning this concept and how it is that he says, okay, because I picked up my plate and I moved, uh, moved it and put it in the trash, now, now you're going to let me play some Mario, right? <laughs> well, no, that's not how it works, right? I'm going to demonstrate loving affection and loving actions towards you because I love you, not because I'm trying to get something out of it, not because I'm trying to get a leg up on the relationship. I'm going to bestow acts of kindness on you just because I love you. Friends, selfishness is going to destroy any relationship. It is a poison to relationship. You look at the characteristics of agape love, that self-sacrificial love as described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's read often in marriages and practiced a whole lot less in marriages. Love does not seek its own. That is, it's not going to make selfish demands. Love does not say, I deserve this, and therefore you're going to give it to me. That's selfish. There's a state of I, I deserve, and I demand that puts up a barrier between any relationship. But when we lay those things down and say, I'm going to love you because I love you, because you're who you are, and I've devoted myself to this relationship, it is a beautiful thing. Think about this one. Be loving and forgiving when wronged. You want to build a stronger home. Be loving and forgiving when wronged. 
And you might add a little dash to this and put, and when I am wrong. And when I am wrong, be loving and forgiving. Some of y'all never been wrong, so it doesn't apply to you, right? That was a joke. All right. This is a fun Greek word. Splanchididzomai. Splanchididzomai. It literally means to be moved to the bowels. That's kind of crude, right? And you're saying, how did they get tenderhearted out of this? To be moved to the bowels. Well, see, the Greeks, if they wanted to say that they loved you, and they loved you deeply, they would say, I love you to the bowels. Because they wouldn't say, you captured my heart. They would say, you captured my bowels. Because they believed that the seat of the emotion was not here, but it was down here. Let me give you an example of this. I used to work uh, and do some stained glass in the garage in my house in San Marcos. And the way that I would do it is I would have one of those old CD holders and I would lay these big 12 by 12 sheets of glass, of uh, stained glass, up uh, right next to each other there on my workbench. And one day while I was out in the garage, I tripped over something and I went almost head first into that, uh, those, those standing sheets of stained glass. And luckily, I caught it such that it just ripped a big old hole right here on the side of my finger. And I felt it immediately, and I saw it immediately, and I went for the paper towels, and I must have gone through an entire roll of paper towels trying to uh, stop the bleeding. I could go on, and I could describe how the gas looked. But chances are, if you're listening to the story, you're feeling that with me. Where do you feel it? I can first response I have when somebody describes their surgery that's upcoming or what they went through, I feel it down here. That's the idea of this word, as that you feel this down, down here in your bowels. That's a number one country song for too long for the next country artist. I love you with all of my bowels. But anyway, when you talk about the seed of emotion and you want to feel with somebody, the opposite of this word, tender-hearted, is being stubborn and being hard-hearted. But this is a person who is easily loved to, uh, moved to love and to pity. I feel for you and you're hurting. I'm trying to love you as much as I love myself. I don't, but, but so often it's I don't like him much so much like you as much love you. Hard-heartedness is the opposite of this. You want to know what the four horsemen of the marital apocalypse are? It has to do with the lack of a tender heart. Number one, criticism. Criticism. We can be so hateful with our words. And we can be so critical with our speech towards others. In this context, our spouse. And we don't know how much harsh and judgmental criticism helps. And it doesn't. It doesn't ever help. And it is never warranted in the marital relationship or in any relationship. Criticism. You want to put up a barrier between you and your spouse, you just be harshly critical of them all the time. And even in your actions, sometimes it's not what we say, but it's how we say it. <sighs> right? What does that communicate? Rolling the eyes whenever it is that a spouse tells us what they're going to do. Treating them like they are less than a person. And certainly a person that we love. Criticism, horseman number one. Horseman number two, contempt. Contempt. Looking at a person, you can't do anything right. Why, why are you even going to try? 
And you're going to look at that person and you're going to demean them and demean the job that they're trying to do and how it is that they're trying to help or how it is that they're trying to conduct themselves. And you're going to look at them with contempt. Horseman number two. Horseman number three. Defensiveness. Defensiveness. Sometimes it is that wives can say something to husband or husband can say something to the wife. And immediately, if we could do, talk about this in terms of posture, we would get to strike the defensive posture. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, why did you say that? Well, what does that mean? Well, why did you, why did you treat me like that? There's an understanding, folks. Then when we're talking about love, and we're talking about wanting to love a person and think the best of them, more on that in just a moment, that it is that we look at that person and realize it may be that they said that because they're trying to help us grow stronger. Proverbs writer said, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Shouldn't that also be the way the relationships are in mar marriages and husbands and wives, where a wife says something to husband, honey, that tie doesn't go at all with that suit. I've heard that on more than one occasion. Well, why did you say that? Instead saying, okay, <laughs> Help me because I know I'm colorblind. How is it that I can pick out a better tie or can you pick out a better tie for me? Because it is that we're trying to help one another. We're in each other's court. We're for one another and for the good of the relationship. Mar Marital Apocalypse Horseman number four, stonewalling. Stonewalling. Honey, you haven't said anything in a while. Is something wrong? No, I'm fine. Okay, everything's fine, right? Because she said, no, there's, there's nothing wrong. Stonewalling. Folks, there's an understanding. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath, Ephesians chapter 4. Sometimes we can grow very, very bitter and very, very angry towards our spouse because we have not actively communicated and felt with and been tenderhearted towards that spouse to the point where we want them to understand why it is that we're upset or why it is that we're angry. And the psychologists and the counselors would tell us, well, in those situations, the temptations wanted to be to say, well, you never treat me right. Well, you never do this. Well, you never take out the trash. Well, you never do the dishes. Well, you never take care of the kids. And what that's going to do is lead to marital apocalypse horseman number three, which is defensiveness. But it is that using that I language, honey, I feel like I don't have any help around the house. Honey, I feel like I'm always the one that's stuck taking care of the kids. Honey, I feel like you don't value me as a spouse. Honey, I feel like you disrespect me at every turn. What you've done is you've just shared your feelings in an open way. And you've given the person an opportunity to respond and say, I feel with you. I'm tenderhearted towards you, so we're going to see what we can do about that in a positive context. Number next, treat your spouse with honor. Treat your spouse with honors. New King James says, be courteous. The word is humble-minded, without pride, courteous, gracious, friendly. The literal definition is having elegant manners, which is fit for a court. This word courteous has its roots in the English back to the roots of chivalry and protection, protecting of honor. There was a time, whenever it was, that a man and woman walking down the street and there's a muddy puddle then he would take off his jacket and he would throw the, the jacket down in the muddy puddle so she wouldn't have to get her feet soiled by that mud. There was a time when men used to open the car doors for women. Maybe sometimes that still happens. 
Or men used to open the door for women before it was that they would go into a store or restaurant. Common courtesy, chivalry, those things need to be displayed because we honor our spouse. We can quickly dishonor our spouse again by our words and by our actions, by our attitudes. You want to build a home that lasts. One of the components of that is courtesy. I'm going to treat you with honor. I'm going to respect the fact that you're my wife or you're my husband. And we've talked about those things in terms of context of both. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. When we're treating with honor, do you realize that we're going to bear with them. When I treat them with honor and courtesy, it means I'm not going to bring up their past wrongs in order to throw in their face. I'm not going to bring up their past transgressions or their past sins. I'm not going to get historical whenever it comes time to fight. Well, you remember how you did this three years ago? And you remember the way that you behaved in that situation? If you're going to bring that up, bring it up in a context to see and to show them the way that you've grown or the way that they've grown. Honey, I used to see that your temper would get away with you. And I remember that time that you yelled at us so much, but then you came back and you apologized. I see a whole lot of growth between that person and the person and the man of God that you are today. And I'm thankful for that. Bears all things, believes all things. You know, there's times that you can read into a spouse and read into a person in their conversation. Well, what do they say? What, why did they say that? Why did they use those words? I do this with email a lot because you look at a way a person reads that or says something in their email and you can't read tone of voice. You can't read context. You can't read anything else except what they wrote in that email. Well, why did they make that so short? Well, why did they treat me like that? And you begin to look at it and you begin to try and read between the lines. Love gives the benefit of the doubt. Love says, I know this person would not mistreat me that way. Love says, I'm not going to be treated by this person. Love says, this person honors me and loves me. So it is, I'm going to believe the best about them. Hope's all things. Why do we treat our spouse like a hopeless case? Why do we treat our spouse with contempt to say, you know what, they'll never change? You know what, things are this bad, and, and that person, sorry man that he is, sorry woman that she is, she's just never going to change. She's just a hopeless case. You know what the Bible tells us? There's no such thing as a hopeless case. Love sees the spouse not just as they are, but love sees that spouse in the way that God wants them to grow and what they can become. Love endures all things, holds up their troubles and afflictions. Biblical marriages, folks, are not problem-free marriages. But they're the marriage that God intended them to be because both spouses are loving God more than anything else and both of them are trying to act like Christ. And so it is you're going to find the happiness in the good days and those things that we read there from Psalm 37 just a moment ago. But part of that involves us treating one another with honor. Last one, the lesson's yours. Speak sincere words of blessing and peace to your spouse. Speak sincere words of peace and blessing to your spouse. This is by far the longest section of what we just looked at. Not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Know that you're, we're called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And if you look there in your context in the Bible, the next word is for. For he that would love life and see good days, and we're back to the beginning, right? And he talks about it, especially in terms, folks, of the way that we treat our spouse or the way that we treat others with our tongue. The way we treat our, each other with our words.
times. There is verbal communication in the marriage. There is nonverbal communication in the marriage. Honey, we're going to go out with the Thompsons tonight. Fine. She said fine, but what did she really say? There's a difference between the verbal, what she said, and the nonverbal, maybe how she said it. Ephesians 4 verse 29 says, Let no corrupt communication, no corrupt words proceed out of your mouth. Has godly communication been seen in your household? You know what, I think that if we were to take a tape recorder, if we were to take Alexa or Google and go down to their, their, their massive factories and go and listen to what's been said in your home, and we play all of those things back, you know, I believe that a lot of us would be ashamed of the way that it is that we communicate with our spouse, with our children, with our parents, all of those things, because it is that we don't necessarily speak sincere words of blessing and peace to those people. Again, our homes ought to be safe spaces, safe places where we know that they're a refuge from the world, where I can know that I'm not going to be judged harshly critical. I know that I'm not going to be treated the way that it is that the world treats me, the way that it is that I'm going to uh, have somebody that loves me and honors me and cares for me. It's a refuge. But we can destroy that place of peace and blessing more quickly than anything else by those four horsemen of the marital apocalypse by being critical, harshly critical, by being contemptuous, by being defensive, by stonewalling. So it is when your husband comes home, wives, and says, you know what? This job is killing me. This boss, he's demanding way too much. I feel like I'm running in a hamster circle. And I feel it is that I can't get ahead. And I feel like it is every single time this, this, this uh, co-worker is undercutting me. And I feel like it is that I'm just spinning my wheels. Well, honey, honey you just need to work harder. Well, honey, if you had gotten that job late that I told you to apply for six months ago, you wouldn't be in this situation. I've got no sympathy for you. You see how it begins to spill over. How we begin to look at somebody versus, honey, I'm sorry you hate that job. I'm sorry you're not content and satisfied where you are. I appreciate the provider that you are for our family. And I want you to know as much as this depends on me, I'm going to make this a safe place for you. Why don't you take, why don't you lead us in a word of prayer, honey, so that we can take these things before God. When the wife comes and she begins to talk to you about her day and those talking begin to turn to grumbling and complaining about maybe you, about the house, about the kids, about the car, about the friends, about the money. And it is that you're tempted to begin Casting blame and saying, well, honey, you know what? If you just got up earlier, honey, you know, if it was that you just went ahead and, and, and took the kids down there. And, and if it was that you just didn't listen to me and listen to what it is that I say. Instead, honey, I appreciate how much you do for our family. I love the fact that you're so attentive to our kids and to our house. I love the fact that you're such a good help me for me as the husband. I love how it is that you love God more than anything else. And I'm here for you. What can I do to encourage you? Let's, let's pray together about that. And let's strengthen one another through this relationship. Proverbs writer said, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. What are we tempted to do in those situations? We're tempted to speak those harsh words. Sometimes the best thing we can do before an argument escalates is just stop. Count to ten. Say a prayer. 
Think about what we're going to say and think about our spouse from their shoes. Feel with them. Have experiencing sympathy with them. So it is we understand where they're coming from and we're going to resolve more than anything else that I'm going to speak words of peace and blessing to my spouse. I'm going to encourage them and I'm going to build our house to make it a safe place. Brothers and sisters, you can see that even if it is you're not married, even if it is that you don't have a spouse, and even if it is that this doesn't necessarily apply to you, that these are principles that can be transferred into any realm of the Christian life. You want to live a good life. You want to see good days. We got to take care of our tongues. We got to take care of where we're aiming our feet, seeking, uh, departing from evil and doing good. And we've got to be people who are looking and saying, I want to be right with God more than anything else. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayers. You want to live a good life. You want to live a better life. Institute what we've talked about with regard to Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, verses 1 through 12. And see if it doesn't make a difference in your home. God's way is best. Your happiness in your marriage is dependent upon the degree to which you do things God's way. Have you honored him in your marriage? If not, then there is a measure of repentance that needs to be done. If it is that we can encourage you and help you in whatever it is that you're struggling with, whether that be your marriage, whether that be your Christian life, your Christian walk, whether that be your relationship with your boss, whether that be the relationship with parent to child, however it is, folks, we're here to encourage, we're here to help, and we're here to uplift. We want the church to be the way Christ intended, where we can speak words of peace and blessing to those who so need to hear them. Whatever your need is, if you're ready to obey the gospel, The Lord stands ready to receive you as we stand and sing our invitation song.